0: Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome. Thank you so much for being here this afternoon. Okay. I'm Maureen Conway. I'm Vice President at the Austin Institute, Executive Director of our Economic Opportunities Program. Delighted to welcome you to our 14th conversation, actually, in our Working in America series in which we look at ideas for improving the lives and livelihoods of working Americans. Um, I just have a couple of quick announcements to, to make before we start. One is um, please do silence your phone, um, but uh, please do tweet. Our hashtag is TalkWithJobs. And I do want to thank our funders who make this work all possible. We are supported by the Ford Foundation, the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation, the F.B. Heron Foundation, and the Serdna Foundation. Um, And I'm delighted today that Uh, We have our Aspen Institute President Walter Isaacson to lead us off. The Working in America series is part of a larger set of conversations we have at the Institute about the economy and how to improve economic opportunity and address the challenge of inequality. And so Walter will go ahead and start us off. Thank you, Walter. Maureen,
1: thanks for all you do. It's amazing. Maureen is uh, somebody who not only leads with a great deal of intellectual capability and honesty, but also with a good moral heart. And that's what we hope to do at the Institute is sort of have leadership based on values. We also like to bring people together of uh, different backgrounds and different uh, perspectives. In fact, if you just go out in the lobby, you're gonna see, I think, Bill Clinton and uh, Native American youth, everybody's hanging around here. But it's a, good way to, uh, it's a good way to bring people together and find out, I mean, as Steve Jobs once you know, said, that if you make a big atrium and people have to wander through it, then ideas and creativity happen. So I hope you'll become part of the Aspen Institute and its larger formation, not just come to these type of things. The 1099 economy—I talked to Senator Warner. He uh, sort of was broached this idea maybe six, seven months ago when we were talking about. And I realized that there's enormous upsides and enormous new challenges we face in an economy uh, that's based on gig and sharing and. Uh, not doing what I did when I got out of college and was in New Orleans and got hired by Time Incorporated and spent 32 years on the same pension plan with the same telephone extension with the same health benefits and everything else and just had a whole career with one corporation. Uh, My daughter, among other people I know, uh, you know, is age 25 and is juggling four jobs and really loving a portfolio. We have to both uh, be able to enable people to do things like that, but also have the social contract that makes sure all of that is fair. Um, We've had a lot of people discussing at the Institute in our various programs the causes of economic opportunity, poverty. Jamie Miller is back there sitting on the thing is helping coordinate uh, some of the uh, big public gatherings we're going to do on the economic opportunity programs. And today, we're discussing uh, the 1099 economy. I hope we can also discuss many names we can have for it. <laughs> kind of like the gig economy, but that uh, sounds like a fisherman off the coast of uh, the Gulf Coast trying to gig fish or something. Um, but as we get a more flexible economy, what is the social contract we need to have as a nation and what do we need our corporations to do? It ties in with another idea that Senator Warner is talking about is what do we need our corporations to do, something that Maureen, Jamie, and many others have worked on here. Uh, the senator is a true leader on this issue. Um, he's probably the most outspoken uh, federal policymaker thinking through the uh, sharing economy and gig economy, uh, bringing national attention to the need for more data and an open-minded approach to this issue. Uh, I would hate to see this issue, which is something, as I said, is an enormous opportunity and a bit of a challenge for America, to become polarized, where people immediately do what they do when they turn on cable news now, is say, okay, here's a new idea, let me jump to one extreme or the other on this issue. Uh, this is an issue as I look at, uh, I just spent uh, two weeks down in New Orleans for the 10th anniversary of Katrina, and the gig and sharing economy is both uh, good and challenging. And I hope everybody can avoid saying, let me take a stance on one extreme of these others. That's why Senator Warner is our guru here, he <laughs> he's somebody who, in all issues, has tried to say, let me think it through carefully, instead of being somebody um, you know, who immediately leaps to an ideological conclusion. He was reelected to a second term uh, this past uh, uh, November. Uh, He's also been the governor of uh, Virginia, where he championed innovative workforce development policies and uh, career training pathways. Uh, But the other thing that's important to know about him is that he spent 20 years in the technology industry, a business leader of cell phones, um, telecommunications, um, survived knowing Steve Case and many others, (laughs) (laughs) so did I in those days. And he also was the first in his family to graduate from college, so he understands the importance of education and innovation. He has personal experience with why it's critical for us to improve uh, business and government policies, and to ensure, this is the important thing, that working Americans can build and sustain healthy economic livelihoods. So let me turn it over to Senator Warner. Thank Thank you.
2: Thank you. First of all, thank you, Maureen, for all the great work you've done in getting this together. And, um, you know, sometimes being a center, you actually have job envy of other folks. One of the people, wouldn't you love to have Walter's job? <laughs> <laughs> you get to convene really interesting people across diverse backgrounds. You've got this wonderful... You know, Aspen Institute platform, and then in your spare time, you get to go to extraordinary places like Italy and write really cool books about phenomenal individuals. So,
1: and spend uh, a summer in Aspen. And spend <laughs> a summer in Aspen. So you know, <laughs>
2: uh, a pretty, a pretty good gig, if I may <laughs> say so. <laughs> so you know, it is, it is kind of wild when we think about this gig on demand sharing 10.99. Uh, it's cool to be talking about an issue that doesn't even have a title yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is both a, a challenge and an opportunity. As Walter mentioned, my background is, I actually can still claim I was in business longer than in politics. And um, while well, I managed to do pretty well with cell phones, Maureen, it breaks my heart when you say silence your cell phones. <laughs> <laughs> As a co-founder of Nextel, I love to hear those sounds go off. Um, but, you know, I also failed miserably at a couple of businesses. So I was, you know, in the gig economy for the gig economy I was called unemployed but uh, <laughs> <and> <laughs> it, is, no, it has either. been or freelance you know mm-hmm. and why I think this issue is so important is and over the last nine months to a year have been really starting to drill down on it and again good news bad news virtually nobody else in Washington is talking about it yet mm-hmm. and to echo what Walter has said we've got to make sure that this doesn't get captured in the partisan divide Mm -hmm. Democrat, Republican, Mm -hmm. liberal, conservative, I don't believe it's on those distinctions. It really is much more future past. And it's how we ought to be thinking Mm -hmm. about it. Uh, And it it will mean, Mm -hmm. I say this to my Democratic colleagues, friends, the idea that we're gonna fix this by simply reclassifying everybody with 20th century definitions isn't gonna work. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we do have to think about this more future past. We do need to think about this in terms of some of the policy questions um, before it gets captured as we go into a presidential debate, contest, uh, as with partisan issues, and, and so I think the timeliness of this is really important. Um, what we also need to know is how big is this phenomenon? You know, we've I've seen the journal come out and saying it's not really much at all. I've heard McKinsey say, and actually GAO's put out a study that said it's somewhere between five and forty-seven million. McKinsey says it's f- literally fifty-three million. Fit into the contingent workforce, and that is a much potentially broader category, uh, but if up to a third of the American workforce is now engaged in some form or another of a independent contractor, contingent worker, gig economy, 1099 economy, this is something big that's happened. And it's being driven in many ways by the millennials. The millennials, now the uh, I think, Walter, you and I are still both baby boomers, you know, pretty much. Um, You know, we are, are, yeah, we're yesterday's news. The millennials have bumped the the baby boomers off Mm -hmm. the stage. They're the largest age cohort. Um, They, within 10 years, are going to be more than, close to 60% of the American workforce, 75% of the overall world workforce. And they are so, Walter was mentioning his daughter, I've got three daughters a little bit younger, but they're kind of all thinking less about where they're going to work in a job and more about what they're gonna work on. And I I would also have one of the people that I've gotten to know a little bit, gonna be out in the Bay Area in a couple weeks, Brian Chesky at Airbnb, who's the CEO there. Airbnb, by the way, which has got more rooms than Marriott and a larger market cap than Marriott. Mm -hmm. Has a, and and he very much fits in this category, but he he has a kind of a mind-bending thought that amongst the millennials, their idea of success is not own a home, two cars and maybe if you do really well get a little house on the lake. Their idea is sharing these items and collecting experiences, protecting their information and having a whole different approach <coughs> to what is viewed as success. If that proves to be the case, then an owner uh, and then a legal and kind of political structure built around ownership really may need to be be rethought a little bit. And this beginnings of the gig on-demand 1099 economy uh, may be the forebearers of what to come. Uh, you know there's a lot of discussion is this driven by economic necessity? Is it driven by choice? One of the things that I've found as I travel around uh, and have had a series of kind of roundtables around Virginia and elsewhere is that um, and this may be this is not scientific, this may be by self-selection, but the overwhelming number of people that I'm talking to, really love this lifestyle. And it's taken even, say, in Roanoke, Virginia, where some of the folks I was talking with were older and have been displaced workers. It took pushing you know, at 10% additional income, none of them would go back to a traditional job. At 20%, they wouldn't. It took getting to 30 or 35% before folks in this flexible uh, economy are willing to think about, I will go back to a traditional approach that Walter and I had growing up, that nine to five uh, in a sense that uh, uh, we've all grown up with. The challenge with this economy, as we all know, and I'm going to try to do this very quickly so we can get to the conversation, is that even if you're doing really well, you're operating without any net below you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when the stuff hits the fan, in the age of digital, you can never say anything other than stuff, but when the stuff (laughs) hits the fan, as it always does, what happens if you can go from here down to here? You could potentially be back on the government dime with nothing to catch you in between. Because there's not unemployment, there's not workman's comp, there's not disability, there's not retirement. So how do we think about this in a way that maintains the freedom and flexibility and innovation, but still realizes there needs to be some level of social contract? And uh, again, Maureen's coming out on cell phones. The remarkable thing is what has really allowed this phenomenon and these platforms to take place really is the intersection of two totally separate ideas Cell phones and GPS technology. Because part mm-hmm. of this is the ability to monetize your time, your car, your, your apartment in a way that was never possible beforehand. So, what are the policy questions I think we ought to look at? One is, you know, and this will be, I know what we'll talk about here, the nature of the whole employee employer relationship. I don't believe the 20th century definitions of either an employee or an independent contractor are going to be enough. You know, and there are other nations, Canada, uh, Germany, and lots of folks in the EU are starting, starting to think about um, third, third levels of definition and potentially more. Um, part of this phenomenon is taking place, frankly, love it or hate it, around Obamacare because the ability to have health care that's not tied to your, your employment really frees up a lot of the ability to be in this on-demand economy. So as we look at unemployment, workman's comp, disability, traditional state-run social insurance programs, should we look at the health care exchange model? Should they be opt-in or opt-out? Does it have to be government run? Could it be private sector run? Can we take some of the old ideas? I, one of the ideas I'm very interested in is the Our Bank. Think about the building trades unions. If you were a carpenter in the 50s, you might have worked for 10 different contractors. Some might, might have been good, some may not have been good. But on every one of those, you had a portable benefit. And both you and the employer paid in a little bit. And it was managed by an independent third party, not by the government, by, in that case, the union. So is there going to be a, a third-party social benefit that might be administered? Okay. Um, we've got to also make, sh- make sure. And what I found uh, kind of on the second issue is uh, you don't want to squash the innovation. But as I talk particularly people working in, in the on-demand economy and CEOs, they do realize there needs to be some policy prescriptions. We don't want to come in heavy-handedly, but we also don't want to default to 100 different litigation cases uh, all across the country. So I do think this is an area where there is this moment, if we can get it before it gets polarized, where we can be ahead on the policy area in collaboration with the people who are doing the innovation, in collaboration with the people who are, who are working in this economy. And they do need these things. I was with a bunch of Etsy uh, makers the other day, and they all love it, but they were really afraid. A couple of more jewelry makers they said, if I hurt my hand, I've got nothing so this is an issue that cries out for a solution. Third is that you know, on a broader basis, and this is a little tangential, but I think we have to realize the federal government needs to be a heck a lot more nimble. We don't have great data, and we, we've written, we need to get BLS to do one of those supplemental surveys to try to look at how really big this economy is, how what are more of its characteristics. Um, we've got to look on an ancillary basis about things like making sure if we're going to have this uh, this Innovation-driven gig economy all across the country. We've got to make sure we've got broadband deployment. Uh, there's lots of areas around Virginia, in particular, where you know people would love to do this in rural communities that have been displaced with, with furniture and textiles and others. They want to try this, but they got to have broadband. We've got to make sure we do a better job. Many of the folks that I see in, in the so-called gig economy that are millennials are actually entrepreneurs as well. So how do we consolidate and think better about the federal programs, which are a complete mishmash about supporting of, of entrepreneurs, and then. Another notion that drives folks into this gig or on-demand economy, this is partially by the economic necessity, is the crushing amount of $1.2 trillion of student debt. So while not directly the subjects, these are ancillary issues that we have to take on. And finally, um, you know, what I hope we would recognize is this is not something. We could, you know, government could squash it by having policies that don't make sense. But this kind of innovation is not going to disappear, not only from America but around the world. We ought to support it encourage it, but we also need to recognize there does need to be that safety net. And, and the report from the front is uh, the vast majority of both on the business side and on the working side uh, want to get it right. And what gives me hope, and I'll go sit down, is that you know, the coolest thing about the millennial generation I found, and I say this as the father of three of those daughters who may not always be in the cool category, um, but is that they want to work for and do the right thing. And the idea that we can fashion policies that lean into this 21st century are extraordinarily exciting in a place where, uh, at least on my day job, not always exciting things happen. Thanks a lot. Move forward to the conversation.
0: Thank you so much for that. Uh, I. I... We are so grateful for your leadership and thoughtfulness on these issues, and I think that perfectly frames the conversation we want to have today. I want to very quickly introduce the rest of our panelists because we have fabulous panelists. You have their materials and bios on your chairs. So I will just put names to faces. So next to Senator Warner, we have Socket Sony, Director, National Guest Worker Alliance in New Orleans Worker Center for uh, Racial Justice. Uh, Next to Socket is Natalie Foster, Fellow of the Institute for a Future and co-founder of PEERS. Uh, Next to Natalie, we have Jared Bernstein, who is now Senior Fellow, Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, and the Board Chair of the National Employment Law Project. And next to Jared, we have David Williams, Chief Tax Officer for Intuit. And we're very grateful to Yuki Noguchi for uh, being willing to to moderate this event and corral everybody and keep us all on track. So I will turn it over to Yuki. Thank you.
3: Thanks for the introductions and thank you all for being here. Um, Obviously, this is a very fascinating subject, and I probably can't do a good job of um, uh, topping Senator Warner and his introduction into the issues. But obviously, it's something that we see playing out in so many aspects of our lives, right? You have online, you have TaskRabbit and Elance and all these sort of online sources of of, uh, uh, gig economy or freelance economy uh, and work. Um, To get here, I I took an Uber, um, and I'm sure that most of you are familiar with Uber and Lyft and those kinds of things. But also, I think uh, in this city we're also seeing a lot of discussion about um, what might be called the fissured economy, you know, people who are working under contract and uh, I think as, as Senator Warner mentioned, uh, a lot of people are trying to figure out uh, what the employer-employee relationship now looks like uh, in, in a freelancer or gig or a contractor economy. What are the responsibilities that employers have to this loosely attached workforce? And I want to just go through, because the terms are really confusing, Uh, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about terms. When we talk about the 1099 workforce, I think we're talking about anyone who files a 1099 form with the IRS, either incorporated or as an individual. Uh, This includes independent contractors and consultants and temps, freelancers, and sharing economy workers. Um, It might also include people who have a job during the day, but might part-time be driving an Uber or something at night or on the weekend. It might also include entrepreneurs. All of these workers fall under what you might call contingent workers. And contingent workers make up a big minority of the US. We don't exactly know how big. Um, By the broadest definition, um, this group uh, of contingent and part-time workers might make up as many as uh, as much as 40% of the workforce. That's fi- roughly 55 million people. Uh, but, but the numbers vary. Um, so the, it can be as low as, say, 10 million people, depending on the, uh, the definition. Uh, I just want to say a show of hands, actually. Um, just out of curiosity, how many people in this room, I don't know if it's representative, uh, but how many people would consider yourselves part of the contingent workforce? Okay, so it looks like about... 2025. Um, uh, so, according to the data, those of you who just raised your hand um, uh, that work in these sort of non standard work arrangements uh, make a little less than people who uh, are employed by an employer, um, but you're also, on average, happier.
4: As
3: it turns out, <laughs> um, uh, given, given all the buzz that we hear about the sharing economy and sort of contractors and so on, it's sort of tempting to think that the overall number of people in this workforce is growing. But the number, the data, actually does not so suggest that that is a rapidly growing um, number of people. Um, so I, I want to actually like turn to our panelists because they have much more data and insight than I do about this. Um, We're gonna look first at the trends, uh, what what the data say about what's driving the economy. Um, We also wanna look at the impacts of these trends uh, or what the impacts are expected to be. Uh, And then finally we'll have a policy discussion um, and then we'll move to your Q&A. Uh, It's a lot of material, so panelists, if you can keep your answers lively and interesting and (laughs) punchy, that'd be great, (laughs) readable.
0: (laughs) All
5: right,
3: (laughs) short, yes. Um, Without further ado, let's talk about the trends here. And I thought um, we have Jared Bernstein, who's an economist. Um, uh, Perhaps you could give us some perspective on the trends in the market, what you think is sort of driving this.
6: Uh, well, thank you, and th- thank you, Yuki, and uh, for, for the invitation uh, uh, to my friends at Aspen. Um, uh, senator Warner, my senator, uh, great comments. I think you just teed up everything. And I thought what I particularly liked in your, in your comments uh, was, was that you captured the um, uh, conflict at the heart of this, the, the two sides of this dynamic. And so I think your question about what's driving it is, is a good place to start. And I would argue that uh, what we're seeing in what I think of as the on-demand economy, and I'll explain why that's probably my favorite term, uh, in uh, in part because calling something the 1099 economy is really boring. Mm -hmm. It makes you think about a form. Um, uh, But uh, I, I think what we're seeing here is really the collision uh, between um, a number of forces. On, on the one hand, and I would call this kind of on the positive side of the uh, kind of duality that uh, Senator Warner correctly set up, uh, you have technology uh, uh, working, I think, in very positive ways. Um, and you have flexibility, which is something that, as was mentioned, is a very desirable um, uh, characteristic for many folks. On the other side, and that tends to be where I focus, because I'm really concerned about the impact on wages, on living standards, on uh, employment security, uh, on uh, the uh, uh, inadequacy of the safety net, as was mentioned, on the, the issue of misclassification. I'm very focused on those. I recognize that some of those are old issues that may not map as well into the current economy, but I, I actually think they do, and they must, and they should. So on the, on the other side, and then I'll, I'll stop, is um, uh, a a very significant risk shift that's been ongoing for decades now, where basically the risks of um, uh, being able to uh, enjoy increasing living standards, uh, the risks of your paycheck being disconnected from productivity, uh, the risks of inadequate bargaining power so that you don't get your fair share of productivity growth. That's been an ongoing process. We see it in, in the workplace in the shift from defined benefit to defined contribution pensions. We see it in various efforts to privatize. You can see it in the decline in the real minimum wage, at least at the federal level. That risk shift, in many ways, the arm's length employment relationship that's inherent in the on-demand economy can be viewed on this negative side as almost the last step of the, you know, the ultimate step of the risk shift where uh, employers uh, uh, are not responsible for the well-being of their employees in ways that have worked for us uh, in the past. Secondly, uh, on the negative side, there's been a a very long-term pervasive and in some cases pernicious um, uh, drive to hold down labor costs at all costs. Whatever cuts labor costs is what we want to do because we want to boost profits and 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 workers have more bargaining power. The more that, the, the lengthier that arm-plane relationship is, the less the bargaining power. So holding down labor costs is another problem. And then finally, there's an atomization of the labor market and the product market. And this atomization is facilitated by technology in ways that remind me more of the guild economy or the piecework economy that existed when... Um, uh, it, you know, it, when, when uh, economies as we know them got their start back in the 1500s and 1600s, and I'd like to come back to that more as we go, because again, I think that these positive attributes, in terms of the um, almost boutiquing of, uh, of individual demands, uh, both on the product side and the labor side, but I also think it has steep costs. Okay, uh,
3: so David, um, you know, obviously Intuit collects a lot of data. Maybe you should you could talk a little bit about what kind of data you do collect as it pertains to the subject and what does the data show?
7: Sure, Uh, thanks, Yuki. uh, First of all, I just wanna uh, thank you for having us and also for teeing up the issue. One of the things I heard uh, and continue to hear is some confusion around the size of this economy. We've talked about almost 50 million people. Um, Our company is at that intersection where individuals are trying to engage uh, with their jobs and we've done a preliminary study that suggests you are just talking about the sharing economy, folks that are in the, the Uber, TaskRabbit business. Um, it's not as big a number as we think it is. It's probably somewhere around three million folks today. Um, our survey suggests that within four or five years, it's going to double to almost eight million. Um, and and
3: are those people coming from uh, you know employer jobs or are they coming off the sidelines? Are they so interestingly
7: time? enough, almost eighty percent of them are doing this as a part-time uh, activity. Which suggests that they may have other kinds of opportunities for the safety net that we've been talking about earlier, uh, but we don't know, and so that's why we're conducting a further study to get more detail around the profiles of these folks, how they live, how they work, and what those other jobs look like. And you'll see that coming from us uh, in a couple months.
3: Mm-hmm. Other than the sharing economy, are there other is there other data on how big the contingent workforce is? is-
7: and yep. whether it's growing so i think you know as well as i gao has done a, a massive review of all of the data and it and the range as senator warner noted could be anywhere from three to four million to 50 million <laughs> depending on how one defines whether you, what contingent means and so it's really about definition mm-hmm. i think one of the problems we have that senator warner is pushing on is we need better data we also need better definitions about what we're talking about because things get mixed up in, as we talk about them
3: right right okay um and natalie uh your organization peers maybe you could talk a, uh, briefly about what, what that does. I mean, you're, you're sort of supporting workers who are self-employed in this economy, um, and you're concerned about social safety net issues, which we can talk about a little bit later, but um, you know, what, what, what can you tell us about the workers' experience, and yeah. what are they telling you about the kind of support that they need? Yeah, thank you. Um, So we launched Peers about three years ago to support people who work uh, in the peer
5: economy. And just to throw out my own definition, since we're all definitionizing, (laughs) um, to me, the on-demand economy is not actually just a term for the ill-named sharing economy. It's actually a a different thing. Uh, It's sort of growing out of the sharing economy. To me, the sharing economy is sort of about sharing assets, boats, cars, rooms, bicycles. And what you see growing out of that is, is an app where I push my button and a meal is delivered to... My door. I push a button and laundry shows up on my doorstep or weed or whatever the like on demand. <laughs> <laughs> not right, not, right, not, right, not, right, not right, but it does exist. Uh, there, there are many of them and they are funded.
8: <laughs> 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 she lives in Oakland. <laughs> <What's the
7: app? laughs>
5: But this is what's in vogue in Silicon Valley now. And this um, model is um, what's very exciting for consumers. I think part of the reason we have this conversation a lot, even though the numbers are still quite small, the on-demand economy is, is part of a much larger, um, as the freelancers union says, 53 million people who are freelancers in, in the country. Um, but it's charismatic in that way because everyone interacts with it and then has a story about an Uber driver that they want to tell you. <laughs> so to that end, I think it's really important that it's finally catalyzing you know, this conversation. Um, so I'll say of our members, um, we see sort of four archetypes of people who are doing this work. The first is um, somebody who's looking for flexibility. So I think of an early peers member I met who left his retail job where he had no um, ability to determine his own schedule and started driving on a ride-sharing platform Lyft. and he was able to make his son's soccer practice at three pm every day, which was the world to him. and that that flexibility is what he traded out for a job that, you know, had very minimal social safety net um, benefits as well. So one is flexibility. Two is additional income or gig. So this is people who have a full-time job, like my Lyft driver last night, who uh, is a car salesman in Columbia, Maryland, but also drives for Lyft to supplement his income. And we hear a lot of stories about why people are doing that. Some it's to sock away, and some it's because something's happened in their family and there's no recourse uh, for that. A third uh, archetype we hear is people who are in transition. These are people who had a full-time job and lost it uh, and are moving and want to find another full-time job and are doing this to get by in the meantime. And the fourth uh, that we hear a lot about also are entrepreneurs. So I think of this woman, Maria, who's been cleaning homes for a long time. And she saw that Handy, one of the platforms that um, connects uh, house cleaners to people who need their homes cleaned, Uh, would would be a really interesting way for her to get new customers. So she signed up and she now has a steady flow of customers that come in through Handy. And what she does is builds a relationship with someone and then moves off platform, uh, which we call off-platforming. So she's somebody who's building her business using um, one of these platforms. So the flexibility, the people in transition, um, the entrepreneurs, and um, those who are supplementing their income are just four of the different types of things that I think are driving why people are doing this work.
3: Sackett, maybe you could talk a little bit about. You work a lot with low-wage workers, and I wonder what, you know, do do they make up? uh, What is their role in this economy? I mean, do they make up a big part of this uh, gig economy?
8: They make up or contractors? Yeah, yeah. they make up a significant part of this economy. Our members are low-wage workers in multiple industries, uh, industries that have long been characterized as contingent and low-wage. Uh, long been characterized um, as poor quality jobs until workers get together, organize, and lift the quality of work. Um, these workers are in the on-demand economy. economy. They're uh, uh, Amazon warehouse workers in uh, California who package the thing quickly so you can get it in a day. Um, they're on supply chains that deliver to giant retailers. Um, these are workers um, who are very much part of this economy, whatever name you may give it. I will say that the priorities of our members in this debate um, are important, not just because they're low-wage workers, but because we live in an economy where very few of us anymore aren't low-wage workers. Um, so this question that you raised, Senator, about future versus past, or is the debate good versus bad, Look, the, the, the debate about whether technology is good or bad has been raging since two cave dwellers sat around saying, fire good, fire bad. <laughs> and, you know, then they kill an animal. Um, <laughs> you know, the, the reality is that we know that markets have created too much inequality and government has not supported uh, enough equality. Um, markets have driven it one way. Governments have not created enough opportunity. And in the middle of that, we have to, I think, come together around this idea that we want to increase equality in the structure and not necessarily debate whether there should be more of the coming structure. Um, I don't think that's a useful debate, not one that's helpful to my members who are you know, below five layers of subcontracting at the bottom of the factory floor where they're earning literally $1 to $5 an hour. The question shouldn't be, is it happening? The question is, how do we increase equality in it? When we agree that that is the question, then we have to separate out and make some distinctions. And I would just offer two. One is that I completely agree that increasing equality means increasing choices. um, And that means that some kind of benefits that aren't tied to your employer are very important. Um, the ability to walk away from work, come home to your soccer game, the ability of a Walmart worker to plan ahead, schedule daycare, all of those are very important. And all of those are supported when you can be flexible in an economy where employers want you to be flexible because they need to deliver quickly to customers. So portable benefits answers the question of how um, workers delink themselves from their employer in that way. The question portable benefits doesn't by itself answer is a broader question of economic choice because not only is the employment now more flexible, but it's much more intermittent. Our members sometimes go weeks between gigs. Uh, A landscaper in my office two weeks ago went several weeks before his next uh, shift. Um, And more and more people are unemployed for longer and longer and we're seeing the rise of long-term and structural unemployment. So portable benefits that are tagged to days or periods of employment won't solve a problem in which African American and Latino workers in particular have weeks and weeks, sometimes months out of unemployment, at the end of which they lose their contacts, uh, contacts, and when they go back to that mixed job interview, the first question asked is not tell me about yourself, it's why haven't you been employed for 28 weeks. Um, there, people have started talking about the idea of a basic income, of a guaranteed income. Um, We can think through that idea. But I do think we're at a moment that pushes us to look for the crossover. There could be an uncommon um, uh, coalition across multiple views and places in this economy.
3: Mm -hmm. Senator Warner, um, you you mentioned, uh, you touched a little bit on the sort of the classification of of misclassification of workers issue. And this is something that's part of the, the broader discussion you know, about um, who is really the employer, who's the boss, you know, when it comes to these workers. I mean, you see the Uber uh, class action lawsuit in, in California. Uh, you see, actually, the NLRB talking about classification workers, uh, contractors. I mean, what is your what is your view on how these workers ought to be classified?
2: Well, first of all, let's, again, hit a couple of the building on what everybody else's points. One, the last time BLS, Looked at the contingent workforce, or the department was 2005. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we got to have better data. Number one. Number two, whether we start as the baseline at 3 million, 8 million, or 53 million, there's no question that I- even if you take the lowest number, uh, there is no faster-growing sector. I, mean, I remember David, some of the folks from one of your new uh, product lines. You know, the micro entrepreneur tax line. You know, it's, it's got a huge, huge growth factor. Number three, um, I do think there is a bit of a sea change, particularly going on amongst millennials about, and whether, again, this is choice or economic necessity, that is um, driven not thinking they're going to work a la Walter for 32 years for the same firm uh, and, and then go write great books. Um, but they're not going you know, to have that kind of um, predictability frankly, the same group of millennials who don't think they're going to have Medicare Social Security because we haven't got our act together on, at, the, at the federal level. Um, the, I have very little sympathy, and this is a little bit socket. And Jared, Jared said, for those enterprises who, for purely short-term bottom line reasons, are taking a, a workforce that until now has been an employee workforce. You gotta wear a uniform. You gotta show up on a schedule. Uh, and and oftentimes I think about subcontractors in the janitorial services, and they have suddenly decided, oh my gosh, if we call you simply independent contractors, we can cut off all your benefits. I mean that is the chair's uh, current comment about pernicious defines kind of uh, the the short termism one rampant. I do think on the other hand, the idea that someone who you know may drive four times a month Uber and rents out their apartment two weekends a month to Airbnb and makes some stuff for Etsy while she also is trying to start an IT business. Classifying that person who's got four different revenue streams as a traditional employee doesn't get it. And I just hope that we don't get caught into this you're either independent contractor or your employee. That I don't. That I would feel would squash a lot of the innovation and not deal with how we lean into this in a way that provides that safety net in a forward-thinking way, and, but allows the good, but also shores up.
3: I'm curious. The, uh, how, what kind of solution? What kind of third well, way? Would but you-
2: the, but, well, listen. I let me say. This is on the bleeding edge. Of, of policy. You know, Canada actually has got something called a dependent contractor, I think they've had some the 90s. Germany's moving in this area. A lot of the EU. We don't, this is not just an America-driven phenomenon. This is a worldwide-driven phenomenon. We need, again, better data. I do think we ought to look at some of these various models. And what I have found, and I've you know, got much more work to do, is that many of these platforms, uh, the leadership of these platforms, not all, let me be the first to acknowledge, I won't call out names yet, um, but many of these platforms' leadership want to get there in terms of doing the right thing. You know, you, if you think about, let's take Airbnb, which started with virtually no, kind of even minimal insurance for somebody renting out their apartment, has now added a million-dollar insurance. Is thinking about putting together a co-op of folks that would have some level of benefits to come in and clean. You know, we need to give some of these platforms the runway to get there and then try to think about the right incentive
3: system. Go ahead, both of you
5: well, I think the most important question right now is how do we create the level of stability that we've created over the last century for workers while maintaining the flexibility that we know people want. I think we should start with the question of outcomes that we want, and then we can figure out how to get there. And it might be that employment is one of the ways, you know, a W-2 form is actually the way we need to get there. But right now, I think we should focus on where we want to be. And I, for one, don't believe that we should have to choose between stability and flexibility. I think if 40% of the workforce by 2020 is going to be doing contractor work. And it's not just Uber drivers. It's my dad, who is an independent contractor and he owns his own handyman business in Colorado. He actually looks a lot like an Uber driver right now because he's self-employed and he has no access to the social safety net. So these ideas that are generating energy, thanks in part, I think, to the senator's leadership of portable benefits, I think could start to answer you know, some of those problems.
3: Yeah, I mean, I'm curious, too, like either Sackett or, or Natalie, I mean, are, are most of these people that you encounter, are they doing it voluntarily? You know, are they sort of driven to it, or are they sort of drawn to it?
8: Well, it's, it's a little bit of both. You know, um, doing things voluntarily because you have ten choices is, is different than doing them if you have two choices. And choosing between working or being with your kid is not a fair set of choices, and most of our members and most low-wage workers in America are choosing whether to live with and spend time with their kids or whether to feed them. That's not fair um, polarization of your day. Um, on the other hand, if, um, and I think this is where Natalie is absolutely right, Senator Warren makes, uh, 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 makes a really good point, which is that you know increasing the supports under someone who can then raise their expectations on how flexible they can be is a game changer. Another game changer is that if you follow the logic all the way, one day income will not be tied to work. And see, we've gotten very used to the way jobs are now, but let's just do a little thought experiment. Right? Um, there was a time when agriculture was automated and we were worried, people were worried about work. But was that a time to defend the old system, which was tenant, uh, tenant sh- uh, farming and sharecropping and worse stuff that came before it. it? We shouldn't defend what's worst about the way we work now in being scared of trying to pave a way to the future. We should work backwards from different outcomes than the ones we have now. We're not trying to re- return to a to a Gilded Age, we're trying to build a new one.
6: So. Let me say a few words about how I think we build a new one from the old one, Mm -hmm. uh, as well as some wonky Washington stuff uh, uh, (laughs) that the senator might appreciate. Um, uh, So you mentioned the contingent worker survey and how we need more information. Now, that's 10 years old. Let me tell you two facts. Um, one fact is that I know for a fact BLS wants to do another contingent worker service. I, 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 they would very much like to do that. And they, they're really good at this. They're really good at these kinds of gnarly definitions of click data. Fact two, um, the budgets, not the ones that you support, but the budgets that uh, the majority support, cut BLS funding to the point where they cannot do uh, that service. OK, mm-hmm. so we can talk all we want about how it would great, be great to have more data, but you can't have more data and cut the LS's budget at the same time. Secondly, uh, if we want to do the next set of things I'm about to talk about, which are ways in which I believe uh, we need to enforce um, existing labor standards in the on-demand sharing economy. I don't think this takes us back to the Stone Age. I think it actually uh, is the way to map the uh The old onto the new, as as Snack suggested. Um, That actually takes enforcement. And the other place where you see uh, uh, some really damaging cuts, now I'm into gnarly budget weeds, and I'm only going there because this case is so important. The wage and hour division of the Department of Labor is essential to this, and if you actually look at the number of wage and hour inspectors relative to the number of, work, uh, of workers and workplaces, it's it's that that ratio has been decimated by budget cuts, and the current budget um, further cuts. Uh, I'm saying the Republican budget further cuts the number of wage and hour inspectors, and that that goes exactly the wrong way, um, because I happen to believe there is no inherent. Um, uh, dichotomy or, or, or um, negativity or negative correlation between innovation and regulation. I think those two not only can coexist but must coexist. And if innovation does not uh, work in such a way as to uplift the folks that are represented here uh, by Socket and others, um, then it's going to be roundly opposed. We're going to have exactly the battle you don't want to have about you know sort of old versus new. So the key. Is to make sure that the labor standards that were established for a long time ago that are still uh, valid. Uh, overtime, minimum wages, you know, health and safety, workers' compensation—not to mention the social insurance programs that uh, uh, independent contractors have to pay into themselves because their employers don't—Social uh, Security, Medicare—all of that needs to be mapped onto this uh, 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 to this new form of work. The the way to do it may be a kind of a third. Uh, category as we've suggested. it may be more of the uh, kind of construction worker um, uh, uh, multi-employer kinds of agreements that we talked about before. There's actually um, uh, an arcane kind of uh, construct in the uh, in the code uh, in the tax code well, statutory employment where um, employees are um, where employers uh, must contribute to say social insurance even if uh, even for their uh, self-contractors numerous places down the line, that may be a solution. But that's, that to me is
7: the way to go. So I wonder, we've, we've talked about the big issues around the social safety net, and, and I, would, I would suggest that um, Senator Warner's right. The, the place where we're seeing the growth and, and the spike in growth is in the microeconomy. I don't think our institutions will evolve quite as quickly as the growth. So um, I think that's one. And I think the reality is that we need to look at what are the barriers that the contingent workforce is facing right now. If you are in the sharing economy and you have never run a business, all of a sudden, you're a small business, and there is a plethora of rules that you've got to follow to ensure that you're fu- you're complying with, particularly since I'm a tax guy, all of the tax obligations that you have to meet, you have to keep track of records. All of a sudden, there's this whole bunch of stuff that you may not be prepared for. Um, and if our social infrastructure isn't ready for these folks, I would suggest that mm-hmm. there are ways in which um, our tax infrastructure isn't ready either. And we ought to be thinking about, are there micro ways in which we could improve the lots of folks who are trying to get into this economy so that we're not creating unreasonable barriers just because you don't understand the landscape? And that's part of where we focus, but it's really critical that we look both at the big picture
2: and really what is the day-to-day life of these folks. I think David I, I think, I think Jerry, we're moving into
3: the policy. I think, yeah, think
2: David and Jared's points are, are really interesting. I want to make two quick points. One is. Um, Bigger macro picture, but the regulatory structure that we have, which every business I know complains about, doesn't have to be as burdensome going forward. It can still gather the same information. We can just do it and we can still have the standards in a much more user-efficient way. So we ought to be think which is nobody's talking about in town. Um, but you know you guys are doing an end to it a little bit. There's a, a startup little, uh, competitor of yours in, in Richmond called Pings 1099. How do you take the structure of being an entrepreneur or being in this sharing economy in a way that you cut down the friction of adhering to government rules? And we ought to be Leaning into that as well. And the other part that I, sh- I should have mentioned earlier, and again, call me a, a crazy optimist, but there may be a consumer component of this. That you know, uh, one of the things that Walter, asked, but one of the aspect One groups that Walter is back, is an entity called B Lab and B Corp, which is the notion of a corporate form that would have kind of a good housekeeping seal of approval. There's an effort in a country called conscientious Capitalism. There's an effort in the UK called Inclusive Capitalism. You know. Think about again that, that 80 million plus millennial cohort who I'm making the bet is going to want to buy from and work for and patronize entities that do the right thing. So, how we start to put some of that value add next to this is a really interesting opportunity. And part of this may even be driven. Uh, I even had an idea, an idea that, that uh, might. Started off is you know you might have something where a consumer would add that tip gratuity to the Airbnb or Uber or Handy or Etsy, mm-hmm. and maybe that's matched by a responsible company that goes into social insurance fund. I think there are we ought to be as innovative as the platforms are being. Now again, and that's easy to do on a platform that asked it's a little harder to do ten blocks from here where I work. But you know, if we do this in a forward-leaning way, and again, I keep coming back to not letting it get captured into here's the Democratic position on this and here's the Republican position on this, or we could do folks, we give folks that kind of uplifting economic opportunity, along with not just making it, I gotta feed my kid. Or see my kid. Right. Mm-hmm. opportunities. Right. Okay.
3: So I want to I want to move into the policy discussion a little bit. But got, uh, go ahead. Yeah, I'm just going to say the first, the um, benefit corporation just went public, which right. is Etsy, right? right? A peer-to-peer
5: marketplace. Um, so there's a lot of movement in there. But there's one more important thing to think in the conversation around regulation, and that is. The government definitely needs better data. It is crazy to me that we don't know how much 10.99 work is happening in 2015. At the same time, I think companies can do a lot to be more transparent with their data, which would allow for new kinds of regulation to start to occur. Nick Grossman at Union Square talks about regulation 2.0. Um, how, at any given moment, we could tell how much someone is making per hour on one of these platforms. Um, there's ways to do that. So I think that we should. Make sure that's part of the equation as well as uh, the government, the government statistics.
3: So we talked a little bit about sort of simplifying uh, tax codes uh, and the infrastructure around being a new small business. Um, you know, kind of a seal of approval for uh, uh, businesses um, to to prove that they have uh, you know goods. Support for their employees. I mean, what are some other? I guess this time I'm just going to do a lightning round yeah. where you guys can talk a little bit about what you think the policy, um, any policy ideas that you might have to either solve these problems or make it easier to foster this without creating, you know, the the kind of social safety net problems that we're talking about. So, David, maybe you could talk a little bit about your, either expand on what you were saying yeah. before or.
7: Well, let, let me just let me just say I. I do, without picking specific policies, one of the things that has bedoubled this country for a long time is is how we do worker classification. There's a 20-factor test, um, which I worked on for my career, and uh, I think it's sort of the the thing that will always change but never changes. And um, it, it, creates, um, it, it creates incentives or disincentives for employers to do things, and we've heard some of the bad side, uh, but it also makes them reluctant to inform their new shared economy workers about basic things that they could do to help themselves. And I think even just providing clarity around what, an, a, 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 what a, an Uber or an Airbnb could actually tell their workers just so they understand and are able to cope themselves in the sharing economy um, is something that we ought to be exploring. It's not a big legislative lift, but it is something that might be might help clarify so that you actually get the same net of knowledge to the worker who is driving an Uber car trying to figure out, what do I have to do? Can, can Uber tell him or her basic stuff or not, or does that suddenly put them in jeopardy of, of a lawsuit? And so I think we ought to be looking at just basic information sharing as a way of empowering, empowering these individuals to take control of their financial lives.
6: I, I, I'd go with two things, one of which is very much uh, uh, David's point, uh, and I'd put it uh, only slightly differently. You know, Senator Warner correctly points out that if, if this becomes a, a kind of an old school misclassification fight, it won't do uh, anybody any good. And I take that point regarding some of the, um, uh, you know, almost kind of canonical examples of the, per- the, of the people you mentioned, someone who, who does Airbnb once a month or something. The fact is, though, and I, I know you, I mean, I, I suspect you strongly agree with what I'm about to say. Uh, while maintaining the points you do <laughs> you're you're focusing on what I think is probably a relatively small group of the classification problem. there are people who drive trucks in ports on the west coast who so clearly work for the port. the port only, uh, the port um, uh, uh, tells them their hours the port tells them what they have to do. they work within the port these are drage truckers for 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 years they've been classified as as, as independent contractors. And so if something goes wrong with the truck, they have to pay for it. So I would say that there are a, a non-trivial group of old-school um, on-demand uh, 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 independent contractors who have, who have been misclassified in the printing system that we've been talking about. So I would get that right. By the way, I think one way to get that right is to get rid of the safe harbor rule that's part of the IRS, which basically tells an employer, well, if you're misclassifying someone, but you've done it forever, keep going, it's okay. Uh, I'm exaggerating slightly, but not much. My second point that I'll be is, um is labor standards. Um, if you're an independent contractor, you're typically not covered by labor standards. And uh, again, if we want innovation and regulation to be friends and not enemies, then we have to make sure that independent contractors, members of the sharing economy, are covered by labor standards, whether it's uh, minimum wages, um, uh, uh, safety and health, uh, and contributions to social insurance, and so well. um, So one thing I think that's
5: really interesting is uh, what the UK did a couple years ago, and they appointed a freelance czar my name is David Morris, and his job is to figure out across all government agencies what to do about the fact freelancers, you know, don't have access to the Social Safety Act. feels like now is our moment to, to appoint a freelance czar uh, to, to do just this so Since all
2: our other czars have done so well. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we need a new name.
7: <laughs> there
2: you go.
5: Um, you can work on the branding. So right.
7: yeah.
5: <laughs> uh, two is, um, I will say, though, the first thing he's, he's focused on is, is, uh, simplification of the tax code, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, for, for independent workers. So um, the second thing that we've talked a lot about is portable benefits. Could we set up what Nick Renauer and David Rolfe call shared security accounts that are prorated? And if I have to use your example, uh, a store on Etsy and I host on Airbnb and I drive for five hours a week on Lyft, each one of those interactions could have a prorated um, contribution mm-hmm. to my retirement accounts, my my paid time off to my workers' comp and my unemployment insurance. I think there's a lot of energy building around that, and I think
3: it's uh, something worth exploring. Um, are okay. there models around that, that that you can point to? I mean, are those sort of, weren't you pointing
9: to- Well, this, yeah, this is
2: kind of the, of the variation on you know, borrowing the best of what was in the building and trades unions around in our banks. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a 21st century version of an hour bank. And I think people are thinking about these things, whether they've been spun out in an entirety- no,
7: there actually is an example today uh, in that the <clears throat> creation of what's called MyRA, um, the administration is pushing essentially a Roth retirement account that is completely portable. Individuals will be able to sign up uh, in the near future. Right now they're pushing it through the employers. And I'm interested in so much of what we're talking about is the employer-based model. And even MyRA is now moving to an individual-based model. So that you have some of the flexibility. I'm sure it's not quite as as broad as what you're talking about, but we at least are exploring that in the
4: conference It's a quick
6: comment. I agree with all of that, but I think the best defined benefit package we have right now is called Social Security, Mm. and independent contractors uh, uh, are supposed to contribute to that themselves, and it doesn't always happen, and it's another reason to get this uh, straight. but could you imagine a system where employers could also contribute to that on a per-rated basis for independent contractors,
5: right? That's, the. That's I think, the
6: spirit I of the model. I think that's a neat idea, but I can also imagine a system where employers who actually employ employees would contribute to Social Security. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I, I like wow. that
5: system.
1: <laughs> and then, I,
5: the one other thing I think uh-huh. it's interesting there to, to note where energy is starting to coalesce around policy ideas is what's happened in Seattle. So last week, a city councilor uh, put forward an, uh, a basic... Um, Law that enabling legislation that would allow contract taxi drivers, limo drivers, and Lyft and Uber drivers to organize and collectively um, bargain with their with platforms. The mm-hmm. And so, if that moves forward, that'd be sort of the first um, time you see 1099 workers doing that. Now, mm-hmm. outside of that, there are examples on something like co worker.org work, where people are using technology to organize in the workplace for drivers who have started campaigns for a tip jar. Exactly to your point, so that he also wanted tip card at <laughs> um, Postmates, who are delivery employees in San Francisco, and started a campaign to change this one particular thing on the app that only a Postmate delivery person would know about, but has a huge impact on their take-home pay. Mm-hmm. So that's starting to happen, and I
8: think um, is interesting signals for. Uh,
3: and the policy question, second. You know, I'll
8: say I'll, I'll stay away from pointing to specific policy, but policy would need any policy intervention would need to do at least three things. Firstly, as work is becoming fragmented and fissured, workers have to hold someone responsible for their treatment. Um, and and at least in the near future, a large number of these workers will not be purely self-employed and doing their own projects. Um, there's going to be enough workers for you know warehouse packaging the thing I uh, you know order from Amazon. So they have to hold someone accountable. Secondly. Any policy intervention has to, whether it's portable benefits or a basic income, account for the fact that intermittent work um, and income separated from work may be the future. And then we have to get our heads around the fact that just these policy solutions will not solve for the problem of voice in democracy. And, and I think you make this point, Senator, in your, uh, in your recent piece, which was that work isn't just a source of income, it's also a source of need. And it's also the way adults, at least, in, for the last 80, 100 years, have aggregated their voice to make a change in politics, in policy, in our democracy. As work no longer becomes the place for people to aggregate, what is going to be the next basis for democracy? And that's a question that will require a policy imagination that is more leaning into the future rather than a shadow of the legal regime of the past.
2: Pardon? Did somebody <laughs> quote that? So I get that. That's a good couple of quick points. One, agreeing with Jared on point, my obsession in the first six years uh, was getting our balance sheet right. Um, not something that we would all agree on how the methodology. I was the Simpson-Bowles. I'm one of the gang members in the Senate. Um, you know, But if we don't get that right, we do two things. One, not only do we cut off all of our investment in BLS and we end up with sequestration, we end up with budgets that are you know, stupid. But we also end up with, particularly from younger people, a complete lack of faith that there's going to be the social insurance programs that have been government structured. So the idea that you're going to create another government structured insurance policy really doesn't have a lot of credibility amongst a a, a millennial generation that doesn't believe even the existing ones are going to be there. So getting our balance sheet right is absolutely essential. Number two, I think you made some really great points. I do think if we try to look a little on the optimistic side here, though, that, and, and let me also first of all acknowledge you know, there's a, If this was a broader group than a Washington policy think tank group, and it was a broader conversation, we'd have. If, if we did this down at Dupont Circle, and people kind of came up, we'd have a lot of eye rolling about our high ideas, because you know, contingent on-demand economy, you know, working three jobs—that's been called getting by if you're poor in America for the last 50 years. So yeah. we have to have a little humility uh, on all this. But you know, the intermittent nature of work and the ability to monetize that f- spare time in between your traditional work in other ways really opens up for a whole lot of folks that have maybe only, only had one avenue that was packing those boxes or cleaning that building other potential revenue sources that might give them opportunity to expand and grow in ways that were unprecedented and one of the, in a separate bucket at some point you know, how we get capitalism to advance that, rather than just government to advance that, ought to be uh, a, a subject conversation. And and the third piece is, is that I do th- again trying to sound naively optimistic at this into the uh, the podium. You know, the ability to enhance younger people and millennials to help push this uh, in in a more responsible way is a really Exciting opportunity. And the ideas of of engaging with some of these platforms and rewarding those who get it right. The fact that you set up Inc. was a private, non state run way to try to address some of these issues. So I think, you know, I don't have a, if I had the uh, um, policy answer, I would have begged. Walter, to give me the whole 45 minutes, you heard the whole spiel. You just heard me ask the questions. But I will just say there needs to be a real sense of urgency around this because I'll bet you dollars of donuts, if we aren't leaning into this, we're going to have presidential candidates before the end of the year, by next spring, coming out with their two point platforms on this that are going to sound very 20th century from either end of the spectrum.
3: Well, on that note, I think we should maybe uh, do some Q&A. And uh, the way I think we're going to do this is maybe ask uh, three questions so that we get, you know, a multiplicity of questions at once. And then, uh, you know, you can either specify or our panelists can um, answer your questions. So um, we've got a microphone here. Go ahead. Um, just... uh, I was going to ask you what you, would think. To turn it on? you turn it yeah, on, yeah. That
6: always happens.
7: It
10: does. There you I go. Uh, I was going to ask you what, what your response would be if I were to suggest that instead of focusing on the sharing economy, which seems to be a very small part, uh, as opposed to what we used to talk about, the knowledge economy or the ownership economy. And from a policy point of view, maybe we could uh, think about <clears throat> apprenticeships as a way of building more skills for people to share in the knowledge economy. And as well as ESOPs, as a, promote ESOPs as a way to uh, encourage more participation in the ownership. Hmm.
4: Okay.
3: Another question, um, maybe on this from this side, in the front here. Uh,
4: uh, This is uh, rather related to what he just said. We haven't much talked about the idea of community colleges as a way of people beginning to see other employment options. Obama has talked about free two years of community college, and also the role of libraries in opening up possibilities to people who haven't even thought of new occupations They're channeled in certain ways because of what they've heard and where where they live. But the world is a big place. And we need to open up people's thinking and things they can do and worlds they can explore. So I'd like some thoughts about the mixture of education and on-demand and contingent work. Okay. I have a more basic question uh, based on the Wall Street Journal's July story, which is, is this real? Um, and you know, not to be too flip about this, but you know, I understand that that what's been called the Fisher, workforce is real. That over the last uh, 40 years or so, we have seen corporations move heaven and earth to avoid uh, paying anybody um, $25,000 uh, a year. Those people get uh, farmed out to uh, frequently fly-by-night subcontractors, which creates an enormous Social problem uh, with respect to enforcing labor standards. Um, you know, we know about that thanks in part to David Weil's book, *The Fishered Workplace*. Um, what I don't feel I have much understanding of is: Do we have an independent contractor problem? Um, you know, uh, your 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 uh, uh, information sheet here says that we've seen. The the number, the unincorporated self-employment rate, fall from eighteen point five percent to six point five percent. That would appear to suggest that um, that we don't. Um, I'm a little unclear about how the definitions work. I suppose if you, um, uh, you know, in one highly attenuated sense, you could call me a 1099 worker because I file 1099s for the occasional. Book review I write, but uh, I'm a salaried worker, and guys like me have been around since time immemorial. Um, the real question, and it seems to me that the question uh, that, that determines whether or not this is, you know, a story to journalists, is: Are we seeing displacement? We are seeing displacement with the fissured workforce. Um, we are seeing workers who used to work for corporations and be guaranteed a certain level of benefits. Uh, no longer be guaranteed that level of benefits. Okay. Are we seeing the same thing with independent? Okay, contractors?
3: There's, there's a lot of questions there.
4: So, <laughs> um, let's, that let's, was more let's, than uh, trade. Yeah, yeah,
6: yeah. So um, uh, I could jump go in ahead. and just yeah. tackle a, a, a small piece of, of what's been said in a couple of ways. Uh, I haven't checked the markets since I sat down, but this may be a, a, a not the right day to talk about uh, ESOPs um, uh, given uh, recent market turmoil. Um, however, that said, I actually think it's a good idea and employee stock ownership uh, uh, programs is what we're talking about. Sorry, you shouldn't be so happy to me. Um, And uh, particularly given that um, what we've seen in in the national income is a shift from compensation to capital. And this is one of the uh, real factors driving inequality um, to uh, help workers claim some share of uh, productivity through that capital channel uh, is is a good idea. However, uh, end of the day, it's the wage that matters most to, to working families. And then the only thing I'll say about the, the big question um, uh, about is this real is that, I mean, look, this is the, the risk shift that I talked about earlier and that you kind of articulated in your question is really real. It's been going on for a long time. You, you talked about it yourself. And part of it is this um, uh, continued arm's length. And in some way, I think I called the what I called the on-demand economy, the fishery economy, and some of it is, is the last blow of the, the great risk shift where uh, we don't even have employees anymore. So th- that downside part of this is definitely real. And it's one of the reasons why these policy solutions are so important. I mean, when Sagitt starts talking about people who work in warehouses, boy, do they sound like employees to me.
3: <laughs> so um, maybe David, you could talk a little bit about the talk of question of is this real? Like, you know, we talked about the sharing economy kind of being a relatively small part of it. Uh, you know, there there have been independent contractors. You know, whether they're FedEx truck drivers or port workers, um, you know, can you talk a little bit about what do the numbers say about whether which aspect of the the con- uh, the uh, contingent workforce is growing?
7: So, so first of all, the it in that sentence is really critical. <laughs> is what is what real? And and the answer, uh, I believe, Jared has it right, which is that there is a there has been over the last multiple decades a shift. In accountability from the employer to the worker, and that continues, and and it happens in various ways. You, um, I'll just give you one personal example. When I started in Washington many many years ago, um, the federal retirement system was deemed way too uh, uh, rich, uh, and so we modeled. Uh, it had a very strong defined benefit plan, and. It was incredible. It was a golden handcuff. And so, the very first piece of legislation I worked on after the 86 Attack Reform Act was reforming the civil service retirement system. At which point, we moved away from a complete defined benefit plan to the traditional three-legged stool that exists today. It is now considered too rich because the the work the rest of the world has moved away from defined benefit plans completely, and is saying you can ha- you may have a defined contribution plan. That is happening in many places. That is the bigger picture. When we talk about the on-demand, the sharing economy, the gig economy, whatever we get our terms right, that is also real. We are, As I said, we're seeing nearly a doubling in three to four years, and I think it will be much bigger than that going forward. And we need to recognize that it is very attractive to people to have the kinds of options that an Uber driver may have or an Airbnb person may have. They may actually say, I possess an asset that I can actually get some money out of, and it's easy to do. How do I do that in a way that... In the in the in the plethora of rules that I have to follow, and so I actually believe both the phenomena are real. Is it a crisis? Perhaps not, but I think it will become one. And I think Senator Warner has even more energy around this than I do. So can I? So I'm leaning forward. So I didn't want to cut him off. No, no,
5: no. Go. I want to talk about the knowledge economy question because this is we've been spending a lot of time talking about low wage workers, but the truth is that the atomization of work is going to happen across all. Sectors with lawyers, doctors. There are already doctors that you can call on demand, and services built up around um, doctors who want to work more, you know, flexibly. Um, I'm a fellow at Institute for the Future, and one of my colleagues there, named Devin Fiddler, wrote about uh, his experience building an algorithm of a firm uh, in the Harvard Business Review. And basically, they wanted to recreate what a firm did just using an algorithm, and so built uh, uh, took a few hours to plug in parameters and the flow of tasks. And it asked first for Amazon's Mechanical Turk workers to pull articles and then dedupe them. And then the algorithm went to Odesk and found um, technical analysts who extracted and arranged the key insights. And then it went back to Elance uh, for a cohort of writers who then took that and put it into something coherent. And then back to uh, Odesk for some editors who pulled it together. And for a Fortune 500 company, they delivered 124 page report uh, with sixty images and graphs, entirely done. Were there any cut an videos in
6: there? What
5: happened? see the you uh, actually read the thing. Yeah. Yeah. So the only <laughs> the point I make is that there's a lot of people talking about the you know the future of the firm is just going to look very very different, and so I think what we're seeing now are signals of where um, where we might be. Hmm. Okay. Let me, let um, I just, can, can I, I go weigh ahead. in a couple?
2: I remember a couple of friends, I been talking about this, and they all sent me the journal article. I said, Yeah, are saying, Warren, well, you may need to be talking about something that's not there. <laughs> and I read through that, and it just, I know it had some data points, but at one point, point and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I thought they, they pared it down to where they said, in this kind of on demand economy, it's roughly 200,000 workers. They had some ridiculously low number that was smaller than even just the Uber workforce. Market. Number one. So I, I, you know, and I know some of these classification issues, and and definition. It doesn't feel right in any way to me. And I think all the from GAO to McKinsey to the other studies show a much bigger universe. And David's comments about whether again it's three, five, eight, or ten, it is a both. It is sizable, and it's and it's at the hockey stick.
3: Which is why you're requesting number
2: one. Number two. I've also seen I've also seen the data on decline of entrepreneurship. Yet I look at my work that just got a ten billion dollar valuation for shared entrepreneurial space that's now popping up all over the country. I think about being a venture capitalist in Virginia. I think about I, before I was governor starting regional venture capital funds, and in Southside and Southwest and Shenandoah Valley and elsewhere around Virginia, and having no deal flow. And now in virtually every community around Virginia, there's enormous growth of Incubators, entrepreneurial centers, and just from a, a flow standpoint, I don't know. It, it seems to me, again, whether it's by choice or economic necessity, a real uh, dramatic rise from even where it was seven or eight years ago. I think a lot of this is happening post-post recession, because people, again, by choice or lack of opportunity, may be forced into this. On the question of the knowledge issue, uh, you know. I'm intrigued by the president's proposal on two years. It's not going to happen in Congress. I do think something we tried um, in Virginia, I'd love to do as a starting point, a K-12 and a half, similar to the German-European program, so that you guarantee with your high school diploma comes an industry certification. If you don't finish it in high school, you can finish it up to, a, you know, in that same year you graduated, to community college, within that same calendar year. So it has a tail on it, and I can even show the most... You know, non-financial legislator that gets payback in less than three years, and the final point that I make, and I think this gets into another category about how you get capitalism right. And I said, as a government, I worry that our government-driven training programs oftentimes don't train people for the jobs that exist today. That if there's a way that we can engage more of the private sector in this, and the notion of training may not be semester-driven anymore, may be modular, apprenticeship, mm-hmm. but it may even be subsets of that. Mm-hmm. That it's really important not only in terms of getting people, it's like for the workforce. But once somebody made the comment earlier about when we, you made the comment about you don't want to fight the move from agriculture to mechanization. But I do have a gut worry. With global, globalization and automation, you know, I know there's always been the next thing. And I don't want to hear, hear like a Luddite, but the more we can make the, the investment in that particularly low and moderate worker a higher value in the value chain so they don't become the first thing that's disposed of versus a piece, piece of equipment or new innovation, it's really important. Right. And the more we can tie that into getting capitalism again to work for everybody uh, is, that's another couple. All
3: right, uh, three more questions. Um, and I gave up
2: all my, I used up all my time, I'll give all the rest of the <laughs> you yeah. Yeah. Your time? You've been very restrained for a
10: senator. <laughs>
6: <laughs> hey, I
2: used to be a governor and a business guy. So <laughs> <laughs> That's why you're the optimist here.
10: <laughs> my name is Mark Materno. I, I'm a fellow at uh, Interactivity Foundation. We did a project a couple of years ago on the future of employment. And I'm happy to see that we c- talked about a lot of the things that you're talking about here. But I want to mention a couple of things, concerns that my panelists had uh, that we haven't mentioned, a couple of concerns. And then I want, I want to tell a little anecdote. Um, one concern that drove a good deal of our discussion was the concern that in the future um, private sector just is not going to be able to produce or create as many jobs as it had in the past. And that that was not a result of the failure of the economy, but a result of the success, that employers are there really not to employ people. That's not their job. Their job is to make products, make services, uh, make money. And we're just doing it more efficiently, better with fewer people. And that that was going to increase as the uh, technology increases. Uh, Big fear was what happens when the uh, driverless cars come out? I mean, just think about the Ubers and the taxi drivers and the truck drivers and so on and so forth. So that was one concern. At the same time, there was a concern that there's a growing gap in the workforce, uh, almost like a barbell thing, between workers who were highly motivated, highly talented, skilled, educated, and those who were not, not motivated. Unskilled, and this was not a distinction between those who went to college and those who didn't, it was, um, for better or for worse, uh, something having to do with work ethic. Though we couldn't say that word because there were people who thought that it might offend somebody, so you had those two phenomena going on at the same time. And so, so, so I'm sorry, can,
3: what's the question?
10: She could, I'm, I'm just telling two but concerns, what the two concerns
3: you want to address and then
10: it? I just want to tell an anecdote because actually, while this keep, was.
3: Keep it short because I'm um,
10: I'm trying to keep it short. While this was going on, I had a panelist who was a vice president of, uh, executive vice president of one of the public colleges in uh, Virginia. And he was telling me, well, they're meeting every day because they have to decide who counts as a full time employee. Um, among teachers. because okay. teachers. I'm, I'm
3: sorry, but we've got other, we've
4: got one. We I can just
10: finish with the point. Uh, the uh, reason why they wanted to do this was to determine who was a full-time employee so that they wouldn't be after Obamacare came in. All
3: right, so uh, a couple other questions. Brief, please.
10: Yeah, aren't we talking about two separate things? The college-educated millennial who wants to work at WeWork and have three different jobs, Airbnb, whatever, and then the um, lower, you know, unskilled worker who's the truck driver um, who's, who's doing it because he has no choice. And shouldn't the policy considerations uh, address that? Okay. Uh,
3: great. Oh, one more question, maybe over on the side.
9: Hi, Jessica Shider. I'm a uh, fiscal policy analyst at the Center for Effective Government. Um, as a young millennial, um, I just wanted to kind of talk about this uh, kind of this uh, push and pull between innovation and you know being the ability to monetize your time, basically. And at the end of the day, we do only have 24 hours. And on the ground, this ability to be an innovator and to be entrepreneurial, there really that that's there's also a tension there um, for people who are my age and are very highly educated but wind up juggling four or five jobs, um, you know, the ability to monetize your time actually in some ways decreases your ability to, to invest energy in longer term projects, you know, in starting your own business and, you know, continuing your education. So there are, there is a push and pull there. Um, and I mean, ultimately, you know, it's, it's not to be forgotten the, the benefits of, uh, you know, Employers kind of subcontracting winds up being, you know, reducing labor costs, and ultimately, how are we to you know, make those longer-term investments? Um, if, if we can monetize all of our time, if it's, you know, if it's two dollars per hour, we're still not going to have enough to to live off of. So, just kind of talking about that contrast.
8: Go ahead. But just just to just to say, and building on a couple of comments, I worry a lot about the truck driver in California who's driving daily, working for somebody and not classified as an employee. I worry about him, I worry about his family, and I want him and others to get together, organize, um, get the plan from Jared, and go (laughs) fight the good fight. I also worry, though, about what's going to happen when that truck doesn't need a driver. I worry about the day laborer in New Orleans who is standing outside a a street corner uh, after Hurricane Katrina made the city the world's largest construction site. I worry about that day laborer and and his or her rights. I also worry about when platforms collapse labor markets and the whole world is a labor market that you can access, whether you're a worker or a consumer. I worry about the fact that long-term unemployment and surplus labor, are going to be more than they are now drivers of the period of time we spend unemployed. And uh, the question there is what you do about that in the future. The answer, I think, is all roads do lead to some kind of guaranteed or universal basic income. Um, There is now conversation going on about this in uh, a surprising uh, spread of places, and it could be an issue um that if we if we treat it right there's a there's a there's an uncommon alliance to be built across an uncommon set of allies
1: C- can okay. I say a couple yeah, just quickly? Sure.
6: Uh, first of all, that's I think the third time you've talked about universal basic income, and I've uh, I've I've avoided saying anything about it. But I, th- I think it's really interesting, and I I read this book just the third time today. Yeah, today. <laughs> but
3: you did giggle. You did giggle. Uh,
6: well, I just read this book by Peter Barnes about right. that. Peter's coming to talk to us about it at the Center on Budget, and I, I commend his book. It seems uh, like a very far out idea to me, but I. I Uh, I I respect uh, uh, you even more than I did after the panel than I did before. So it makes me want to learn more about this. But I I will say one thing um, about this. Uh, We have a basic demand problem in our economy. And I don't. We, there, there's not. We, we're not creating enough jobs. And a number of people have kind of alluded to this. And interestingly, we are a Federal Reserve that wants to raise rates to slow the economy down. Just to be slightly topical. So we, there's some confusion among macroeconomists about what we should even be doing right now to increase the demand and close the output gaps we have that are, you know, very much alive and well. And you know, I, I think one great idea in this space is more infrastructure investment. And if Congress were able to do if if, if people like Senator Warren were able to do that, I suspect we'd see more of that. I will say one thing. It is very hard to make a Except case three things actually. Oh. <laughs> it's, <laughs> very, it's very uh, you hard to make yeah, it's very hard to make a case that we are a, a doing more efficient production with fewer people. Because if that were true, we'd see productivity increasing, and instead productivity is growing
3: right right I'm sorry we weren't able to get to your question about whether there's different policy prescriptions for the low-wage versus the knowledge worker, but we've got to close out. So. Yeah,
0: I'm, unfortunately we're at time. Thank you all so much for contributing to this conversation. It was really terrific, and please join me in thanking our panel. <laughs> At least you, Thank you. Thank you. Please do come back for our future events in our Working in America series.
8: Thank you.